Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is Frankie Y. Bailey. Frankie is a mystery writer and a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Albany. She's received a George N. Dove Award and a McCavity for her nonfiction work, which has also been nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Agatha Awards. Frankie's a past executive vice president of the Mystery Writers of America and a past president of Sisters in Crime. Her mystery fiction series, um, there's two of them, that they feature uh, an amateur sleuth and crime historian Lizzie Stewart and a police detective named Hannah McCabe. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Frankie. I really appreciate you making time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Now, for readers who are new to you and in, in your published works, uh, what should they know about um, this new release coming out at A Dead Man's Honor and also the African-American mystery writers? Well, A Dead Man's Honor is actually the second in the Lizzie Stewart series. Uh, there are five books in the series, and they're being reissued by Speaking Volumes, and I'm working on a sits now that the others are coming out. Uh, they're now, for the first time, available in ebook in Kindle, uh, as well as print, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, and what was your second question about? Uh, about the, uh, the African-American mystery writers. Ah, okay. Yeah, that was the book I wrote. That's the title of a book about African-American mystery writers. Uh, it is actually a sequel to Out of the Woodpile, my very first nonfiction book, which was about black characters. And then later on, I followed that up a few years ago with African-American mystery writers, looking at uh, African-American mystery writers coming with their roots in slavery and then coming through the 19th century when they began to, when African American writers began to actually publish and then getting into the early 20th century around 1932 when the first identifiable book that's a mystery by an African American writer comes out and then following them up through the 20th century into the 21st. Wow, that's really incredible body of research. I, I would imagine that had to be pretty fascinating to look at, you know, how those folks, um, you know, worked through the, 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 the society of the times to actually become, you know, successful, credited, and, and, and acknowledged and published authors. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I intended to begin with the 20th century, but then I realized that the roots of publishing, you, know, when African American writers were describing things like crime, the crime of slavery from the African American point of view, are the kinds of crimes that they were being accused of or prosecuted for, that I really needed to go back to that point when someone like Frederick Douglass, you know, the mm -hmm. famous uh, escape slave and abolitionist, would write about stealing himself, where you know, running <laughs> away was actually a crime. And so yes. I needed to look at how that evolved over time till, until they were actually writing within that genre where they were writing something that could be identified as crime fiction and drawing on, you know, that kind of thing. Paula Hopkins, for example, wrote a short story uh, that uh, actually drew on or was inspired by the Lizzie Borden uh, double murder case, mm. where Lizzie Borden, this white middle-class yeah. woman accused of 
killing her father and mother. You know, you mm-hmm. have Paula, Pauline Hopkins using that as the basis or as inspiration for a story that she wrote where her characters are African-American. So, you know, doing that and, you know, building on that, I was able to look at the things, that, the kinds of themes that were there and that played through from the early earliest writings by African-Americans up to and through the present. We would get to Walter Mosley and all the others in the 1990s and after. Now, I, as a professor of criminal justice, you're, you're, you're known academically as a, as a crime historian. How, how do you explain your area of expertise and research to those outside academia? Well, I do crime history, and I also do uh, mass media popular culture, so the two together with criminal justice. But what I do as a crime historian is that I do what other historians do, but I'm focusing on crime. So, for example, my dissertation was about, uh, I wrote about the 1920s and 30s, and I was looking at prohibition, and Mm -hmm. I was looking at other crimes within the context of what was going on during the Roaring Twenties and the 1930s. So, for example, right now I'm writing a book about gangsters, a reference book book about gangsters. I'm looking at gangster movies and real-life gangsters and comparing and contrasting what was going on. Uh, I've been co-editor with a colleague of a series of books about famous crimes and trials where we started at the colonial period and worked to the present. And we were getting contributors to write about um, famous crimes that happened from the witch trials, witchcraft trials in Salem mm-hmm. up yeah. to the present. So that's what I do. But what I'm doing in that sense is that, um, as Robin Winks, the famous historian, said, I'm, I'm looking at when he talked about you know, the historian as detective, the idea that we do the same yes. type of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use the archives, I use papers, I do interviews with people about oral history, and I'm focusing on crime as the theme that leads me through American history. And what I'm looking at culture, I'm looking at in the sense of what was happening when. Now, a, a lifetime ago, it feels like now, when I was a, an undergrad studying chemistry, I, I briefly taught for uh, taught for my university in, in a couple lab classes and some tutoring. And even at that time, um, there was a tremendous technology and age gap difference between me and, and my students, um, where I, I would kind of expect teaching something like research and, and criminal justice today and trying to teach, you know, an 18-year-old freshman or, or 20-year-old, you know, junior in, in school, um, do you have to have like a play-by-play on this is what the Dewey Decimal System is and this is how you go actually find a book in the shelf? Because um, everything is so technologically driven that I, I think sending a, a lot of these kids into the library would be um, almost, you know, would have to send a search party after them later. Well, you know, I teach my historical research class with graduate students who are a bit, you know, better prepared for <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, with the undergraduate, what I teach is my mass media class, my mass media uh, crime and mass media class where we're looking at things like uh, movies and documentaries. They are, so for example, when I'm teaching, uh, when we're looking at, and I taught last semester, just 
recent semester, we were looking at gangster movies. And one of the things I'm finding, and this is no reflection on our students who are really good. You know, we have some of the best students around, but they just don't have uh, vast exposure to movies from the 20s and 30s and classic movies. Mm -hmm. yeah. So before I can get to the present, to like the remake of Scarface, Yes. which some of them don't know that you know, the Al Pacino movie is a remake, I have to go back and introduce them to uh, Humphrey Bogart and James mm -hmm. Cagney and Edward G. Robinson and the movies of the 20s and 30s. And then we work our way forward to the present because they just don't have that background where when everyone used to watch television and there were only three channels, three networks, yes. and people <laughs> watched Saturday movies, everyone knew that. But now people are getting information in different ways, and mm -hmm. often they're watching their television on computers and the internet and streaming. And so, you know, people are getting information and even entertainment from so many different sources and don't share a lot in common. And so, some things they don't know or haven't seen, even a television show like The Sopranos, for example, not everyone saw it when it was on. So now we're going back and I think bring them up to speed and get everyone at the uh, same place before we can move on. Now, what, what first attracted you to, um, to history and to, to criminal justice and, and then to studying crime history? Well, yeah, I started out pre-vet. I was going to be a veterinarian and I started out uh, as a biology major at Virginia Tech and then I realized I didn't really want to do organic chemistry. Mm -hmm. And I spent some time looking <laughs> yes. around for something I was really interested in. I ended up with a double major in psychology and English. And then uh, the last semester of my senior year in college, I went to my advisor in psychology and said, you know, I'm really, I think I want to go to grad school, but I don't know what I want to do. And he said, what course did you take that you really enjoyed? And the course I came up with was uh, a course on criminology, the only one offered at Virginia Tech in the sociology mm -hmm. department. And he said, have you thought of criminal justice? And I said, what is criminal justice? Because it was a new area. <laughs> yeah. And he told me to apply at Albany because it was the best. And actually, he was right. He was number one in the country, and we're still ranked wow. really one or two in the country. And so he gave me, you know, good advice and I ended up here, you know, after a brief, very brief time in the army as a food inspector. Uh, mm -hmm. I ended up here in grad school and I'm back as faculty. But when I returned, the uh you know, I was looking around as a graduate student for something I could do. And uh call uh, well, another grad student in the same office suggested he had just read a book about the witches of Salem and he mm -hmm. said, Well maybe you can do something with this and I ended up using um, Carrotson's book about the witches of Salem and the Salem witch trials and used that as an inspiration for research I was used doing in my hometown of Danville, uh, or wanted to do in my hometown about uh, African Americans in Danville in the 1920s and 30s. And my inspiration was, you know, the Salem witch trials where I mm -hmm. thought, well, when I look at African-Americans, I'm going to find repressive justice. I'm going to find mm -hmm. lynching. Yes. Uh, and that actually is you know, was the inspiration for the book, The Dead Man's Honor, 
uh, in the Hannah McCabe, or sorry, Lizzie Stewart series. But I didn't find what I thought I was going to find. And so I was so fascinated by the lynching story, the lynching incident that I did find. I wanted eventually to use that when I started writing fiction. And no. so I went back and changed the story a bit, but kept the heart of it. And it's now a story in the book that Lizzie Stewart is investigating. Uh, and there's a real life crime. And then there's this crime that happened in the past that she's looking at. Now, how how much of, of you appears in, in Lizzie Stewart and, and her adventures? Because in, in reading A Dead Man's Honor and in, in reading your bio, um, I, I feel like there's an awful lot of authenticity in this character. Well, in the sense that when I sat down and I wanted to write about uh, you know, the past and I wanted to use my own research, I deliberately came up with a crime historian as a logical person to do that because now my research, when I write about her, you know, I either draw on research I've already done or I go to the place where she would go, for example, in the fourth book when she's looking for her mother and she needs to, her mother got on a bus and left town when Lizzie was you know, five days after she was born. Uh, I, she's in Chicago and so I go to the Chicago Historical Society and I I did do that, and I walked through everything she would be doing in Chicago and in Wilmington, North Carolina, and in uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, you know, and so it's easy for me to do that for her. Uh, but, you know, she started out, we started out with more in common than we have now because she's, you know, five books into the series, and she has an institute in uh, Danville, Virginia, my hometown, which I call Gallagher, uh, where she's doing research on um, crime in Southern culture, and she's engaged at this point to a former police officer, a homicide detective, uh, and she has been having some, not deliberately walking into danger, but when you're mm -hmm. investigating the past, sometimes people don't like it, and you yes. get into trouble. And I try not to have those kinds of things happen in my real life. <laughs> so she's taken on a, a, you know, a personality and, mm -hmm. uh, and has adventures I don't have. Now, we were talking in the, in, in the green room before the, uh, before this started. And um, as, as, as sincere and as easy as you were to talk to you, and you know, having spent time writing with cops, I, I would imagine that, you know, probably a lot of the folks that, you spent time with probably got comfortable enough with you to be a little bit more sincere, a little bit more honest about, um, you know, maybe letting their guard down a little bit. And, you know, from, from my perspective as, you know, just a, an anecdotal street experience, you know, non-academic sense, um, a lot of, uh, to me, you know, the, the police force in general and, and crime and prosecution generally, this is a huge overarching topic now, but, um, I, I think it's really more than anything else, a reflection of society. And, you know, the, generally speaking, the, the cops aren't out enforcing laws that aren't on the books or not enforcing laws that some portion of at least the powerful in society want enforced. Um, and, and your research as a crime historian, I would imagine that a really common theme effectively that keeps coming up is, you know, ways in which the, the powerful in society have kind of continually used that enforcement arm to suppress 
minority populations is, is am I way off base? Well, it's kind of interesting when you look at how the police systems evolve. I'm in the Northeast right now in Albany, New York, but when you look at Virginia and the Southern colonies, uh, there are things going on that really affect how the police evolve. Uh, mm-hmm. In the South, because of the slave system, you, you have uh, the civilian militia where you're able-bodied men and boys are partic- uh, expected to you know, be able to use arms and you know, take part in militias, and a part of the gun culture comes out of that need mm-hmm. to deal with the slave population in case of rebellion. And also the expectation, because it's a rural area, that you're going to have the towns and then you have the county sheriffs, and so you get that developing. And we get a bit of that in upstate New York, but in upstate New York, you have, New York is implicated in the slave system, but doesn't really have that kind of slave market and the presence of slaves in the same numbers once we get into uh, the 19th century when they begin to engage in gradual, gradual manumission of slaves. Uh, so when we look at a place like New York City, it's actually coming out of that need for crime control uh, as the city becomes more populated. And as you have you know, migrants and people moving in and New York City becoming New York City. And so we get the professional police departments appearing in the 1840s uh, in New York and Philadelphia and Boston and other places. And very quickly, you have police having to make decisions about whether they're going to be armed and whether they have uniforms. And that's happening at the same time that people are moving west. And so you get those territories and you get you know, the marshals up west and all the things we know from the, that mythology, mythology about uh, the west and outlaws and so on. So there's a, a kind of different development depending on where you are in the country. And so, yeah, yeah, I agree with you when we get to New York City in the mid 19th century. And you have your riots going on, mm-hmm. carried out by young men who are raiding brothels. And you got, by 1863, you got you know, the draft riots in New York City, you know, the largest riots we've ever had up to that point. And then you know, by with the Civil War, uh, the criminals get guns. And with each war, they get better guns. And the police are always trying to keep up with what's yes. going on. And then cars come along in the 1920s, and you got you know, the gangsters getting cars, and the police officers in places like Albany. You know, the police chief writes in his report to the city council. You know, we are really, you know, he doesn't say thrill, but it amounts to that. He's really excited when they get cars and they're able to go out at night, and you know, they're riding around with cars with lights, and they're <laughs> using party guns. So, you know, so every innovation that comes along in civilian life or mm-hmm. in, uh, after each war, you know, it changes what police officers are doing. If you look after the Civil War, where you've got the outlaws going out west, and they're taking along with them the Winchester and the Colt 45 and the other guns that they've learned to use, and the Pinkerton detectives are going out there. So, so yeah, it's really just you know, innovation and what's going on. And the police are responding to these expectations about what they're going to be able to do. So by the time we get to the 21st century, police are dealing with the changes in technology we talked about, you know, where Mm -hmm. 
you do have the cameras uh, on cars and on their uniforms and people with video cameras in the late 20th century. And uh, you've got the police using Facebook and the criminals using Facebook and <laughs> everyone, you're communicating, communicating in different ways and different stressors being played out with both groups. So, yeah, a lot going on. Now, what what is your what is your research process like, and is there really a whole lot of difference in your preparation for your fiction work, your fiction series, uh, and versus your nonfiction? They overlap a lot. So I'm writing, for example, just finished the first draft of a book about dress and appearance, clothing and appearance, and uh, perception in yes. American history and life. Um, the colonial period up to the day, that would be like Trayvon Martin's hoodie or police officers' uniforms and so on. And in the course of writing that, I ended up writing a short story involving Lizzie uh, that ended up being published in the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine because I came across this coat uh, from the 20th century, this wonderful velvet coat that I saw a photo of. And I wanted to use that for something. And so I ended up writing a short story where Lizzie receives this code in the mail and she has to figure out why someone sent it to her. Uh, and she goes back and traces you know, the origin of this code in Gallagher, my stand-in for Danville. So, yeah. so things that I do research on at, in nonfiction, I'm always looking for something I can use in real life. So right now I'm writing a 1939 thriller, historical thriller because I came across some things in real life that I wanted to incorporate into, uh, you know, fiction. And so that's what I'm doing with that. Because so many things were happening in 1939. Now, I and I recently, was able to bring them all together. Now, I recently spoke with uh, an investigative journalist, Kevin Deutsch, uh, a couple months ago, and, and we discussed the topic of, of yellow journalism. And with, yeah. within the first few chapters of uh, a Dead Man's Honor, you show something of that when uh, your main character, Lizzie, reads two different newspaper reports about a lynching, and one of them very heavily glosses over the event and, and how this whole thing came to pass. As a crime historian and researcher, how difficult is it for you to find objective sources and accounts for your research, um, and, and are there specific things that you look for that kind of help give you confidence in the in the veracity of a source material or personal historical writings? Well, you know, what you saw in that book is actually based on what really happened uh, in terms of the coverage. Uh, the Richmond Planet, uh, an African-American newspaper where a lot of the middle class and professionals from Gallagher, my stand in for Danville, uh, would go to Richmond and they would be interviewed and talked to and they had uh, a correspondent in Danville um, who, you know, Gallagher in the story who uh, reported to them about what was going on. So the story, as you read it, that that sec I don't have the book in front of me, but that you know story where they're talking yes. about well you're uh, praising the mayor and the police for what happened in terms of re response and acknowledging that the man who was involved uh, in the real life case where a police officer was killed that you know they talked about that that they were grateful that the violence had not uh, gone from the house to uh, people invading the black community and the community being burned down as it would have happened in some places, you know, further in the South and, you know, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia. 
uh, Gallagher and you know, in my book, Dan Boy in Real Life, uh, there was a mayor who had been um, the mayor. Uh, he had been uh, captain in the Confederate Army during the Civil War and mm. later on became mayor. And he was mayor for like 46 years and died <laughs> in office. Wow. Uh, and he, when this real life event happened, he and the district attorney and police officers were all present. And it was a lynching because people in the crowd, when they hear the police officer had been shot, rushed to the scene and were on rooftops and gathered outside the house and someone set the house on fire and the man ran out of the house and they shot him as he ran out. And that's why it was a lynching technically. But yes. in answer to your question about sources, I'm always talking to my students about this. Uh, we know, you know that uh, mass media, the news media, you know, depending on the source you're using, people are getting news from so many traditional sources and also on the internet and YouTube. Uh, I you know, emphasize to them how careful you have to be about selecting sources, realizing that any source is going to be distorted to some degree based mm -hmm. on the audience and the realization that the media, that you know, newspapers, television, all of these your agencies, organizations are in a business. You know, they have an obligation yes. under the Constitution to report the news, uh, First Amendment, but at the same time, you know, they're aware of expectations on the part of their audiences. And so you see this real divide between Fox News on the far right and MSNBC on the far left and CNN in the middle and PBS trying to rise above it all. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the New York Times is different from the Washington Post and yes. different from uh, USA Today. And so USA Today, to some extent, has changed the way newspapers operate because there are more graphics and more photos and other things. Mm -hmm. But just getting a camera changed the way newspapers yes. operated because they started out, in the, in, if you're reading newspapers from the late 19th century, then you have illustrations. And you mm -hmm. get into the 20th century and you begin to have photographs and you begin to have mug shots that police officers, police departments are using once cameras come along. And that changes. And if you look at your two newspapers and you've got one with one photograph and the other with another photograph of the same person, then your impressions of what happened may, may be very different. Just the headline is going to change how you perceive something. Now, in the in the interest of I guess full disclosure and, and fairness, one of the biggest surprises and quite frankly kind of disappointments for me in, in transitioning from the, uh, the the theory of the police academy to the practical realities of policing was this glaring light that got kind of put on my ideology. Um, not everyone who raised their right hand and swore the same oath as me and wore the same badge um, universally held up all of the same very concrete moral cornerstone tenets. Um, in your research and your expectations, what, what's kind of been your biggest surprise in your transition from a student of history to a professional academic? Well, you know, I, I think I, what surprised me and what shouldn't have, because I was an English major as well as a psychology major, but the degree to which we're dealing with competing narratives, uh, competing mm -hmm. stories in 
criminal justice. I mean, it's very obvious when you look at a courtroom where you get a prosecutor and a defense attorney and they're looking at the same thing uh, and presenting different stories for a jury. But it begins very early on in terms of when you look at theories of crime and criminology, criminality and why people commit crimes. And as academics, we have different theories about this. And we're in our academic you know, environment, you know, we have competing theories offered by different social scientists. And then when you add in people in other disciplines, you're telling different, looking at the same thing and offering different narratives. It begins with us in the classroom as well, just with students having to choose between you know, what they believe based on evidence and competing kinds of evidence. And so when we look at you know, people in communities and how they're perceiving what's going on, you know, they're depending on their politics, telling different stories about the police and about the accused and about victims. And the whole idea that you become a victim based on whether or not people accept your interpretation and you accept your interpretation of what happened. For example, mm -hmm. if you're, you're a rape victim, but you don't see yourself as a victim and you don't know you've been a victim until someone says, well, this shouldn't have happened. I mean, right. or the Me Too movement, for example, yes. or Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, you're the whole issue of who's the victim there and how it's interpreted. I mean, we have all these stories going on. And that's a fascinating part for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and, and that's, I guess, kind of a, a related tangent, right? You know, it, not just looking at, you know, the last few centuries where, you know, uh, literacy was much more prevalent than it has been throughout the, the course of the human experience. Um, generally speaking, uh, from, you know, my, my study of history, right, the, the, the history is usually written by the winners, which makes yeah, it exactly. pretty biased. Um, but with that reality, um, why, why do you think, why do you advocate that, that people should study history if it's automatically biased or automatically written by the winners? Well, yeah, I think if you go into it aware that it's going to be written by the winners, uh, we have, you in recent decades, gained... Uh, there are new methodologies that historians have been using, well, not new, but historians mm -hmm. have been using more of, for example, oral histories. So if you wanted to know about Rosie the Riveter, uh, and you know, women have been writing books about that more since the 1970s and you know, the women's movement and with uh, people of color, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. But if you wanted to know about, you know, those women and the stories were not written in a way that you consider completely accessible. You would do something uh, like go out and interview those folks and get their story. And so you, you have the thing we do better now, you know, whatever type of history we're trying to do, is that we find ways to gain access to people who might not have had a voice before mm -hmm. uh, and get their stories and compare the stories. So you're getting multiple perspectives. You're getting the stories told by the former slaves, for example, in the 1930s. And you're putting that up against the stories written by uh, the masters and by the historians who you're presenting the pro-slavery point of view. 
or if you're looking at uh, police officers and uh, African-American males, you get your know, interviews with both groups. Or if you're looking at your know, uh, women and they're talking about domestic violence, then you want to have the uh, your information about the people who are involved in the violence uh, from multiple sides. Uh, and then you look at the documentary evidence and you look at anything else you can find. Uh, and you, you compare, if you're looking at serial killers, you look at you know, the uh, records uh, kept by the medical examiner. So those kinds of you know, multiple sources of evidence. And you put it all together. It's sort of like detective work yes. where you're trying to put it all together and tell the best story possible. Uh, from as many perspectives as possible, knowing that you'll never be able to really get to everything that would give you all the details, but you get the best story possible. Yeah, and, you and know, you want to do it because uh, you know the the you know, the famous idea, you know, William Faulkner's uh, famous statement about the past never being uh, the past and never being dead and always being a part of the story of understanding what's going on in the present because we are we often repeat ourselves over and over again and yes. so to the extent that we understand what we're wrong then hopefully we're going to be less likely to repeat ourselves now, i understand that you you've also done some um that, that you also do some philanthropic work and have actually been part of a an anthology that benefited a, a charity work can you tell us about that Oh, Down to the River, it just came out recently, and uh, it's a collection of short stories, and you can it's available on Amazon and at bookstores and other places, but it's a collection of short stories that will uh, benefit uh, a river foundation aimed at you know, preserving and cleaning up rivers. I wrote about uh, a short story uh, called Eel's Blood, <laughs> about uh, Lizzie, my crime historian, uh, receives uh, a telephone call from someone she met uh, in the very first book set in Cornwall, England, a young woman she met from uh, the South, and they were fellow uh, Southerners in Cornwall. And this woman, young woman, who's now in college, calls Lizzie, and she wants her to help her find out about a story about a man who ended up uh, you know, going into a rage and being arrested because his mother had cooked an eel he caught while out fishing. And he says his mother tried to poison him and he gets into a fight when the police arrive and they take him off to jail. And so Lizzie tries to find out what would make someone bring an eel home and then go crazy and, you know, you accuse his mother of yeah. trying to kill him when she cooks him up. I never, I actually had to do research on eels. I know nothing about them other than the <laughs> fact that when I was a child, my mother, my father went out fishing and he came home with one in a bucket and my mother looked at it and said, do you think I'm going to cook that? And he, and the, the eel was still alive and I don't know what he did with it, but he took it away and I was just fascinated by that because yes. they look like snakes. I mean, you know, yes. they're really creepy, yep. but and so I did some research, but apparently they are quite good to eat. They're only poisonous if uh, you eat them raw, if you eat the meat raw. Uh, there are all kinds of superstitions about them. So I, I needed to come up with a story about that. And that's what my story is about, about why this man would bring the seal home and what happened when he was out fishing that 
night in. So I wanted to use the Dan River because the Dan River runs through my hometown of Danville. It's really beautiful. There are two bridges and it runs through the center, center of town. And so I wanted to do that rather than the Hudson River, which runs uh, near Albany because we can't really see the river here because of the uh, infrastructure and the overpass and things that have been built. Now, what uh, what advice if someone came to you and said, you know, they wanted to write a historical fiction or historical crime fiction, what, what advice would you give them about starting out that project? Do research. People who read uh, historical crime expect you to get it as right as possible. Um, as, but my agent says you don't want to be bogged down and do research forever because I'm mm -hmm. getting, I've been doing so much research search for my 1939 book. I mean, it could take me forever. There's some, sometime you have, I mean, sooner or later you have to realize you just need to stop, that you are writing fiction and that you stop and write. And then you, because you can't always tell what you're going to need to know until you begin to write. Right. And then you realize that, for example, uh, I know that I need to know more about the New York City World Fair, even though I've been doing a research lot of research on that and have read you know, all kinds of things about it. Uh, when my characters actually go to the 1939 New York World Fair where something's going to happen, I want to have them be in the right place, the best place uh, for you know, what I'm plotting. And when they end up uh, in December of 1939 at the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta, I want them to, you know, to be in the right place for what's going to happen there. So I know I'm going to write and then I'm going to have to do more research and then write and do more research. But you know, once you know what the basic things are, the basic things that happen, the timeline, you can you know, insert whatever you're writing into that timeline. But keep in mind that you're going to be dealing with you know, people who may know your period really well. And mm -hmm. so you have to be careful or at least be prepared to send your author's note why you change history to, and it's, you're, you're allowed to do that, but you just need to be able to you know, explain why you chose not to write it as it really happened. So what, are you, what are you working on right now or this summer and where can readers connect with you, uh, find your works, maybe a newsletter, something like that? Well, I've been trying to get a newsletter out forever, and I'm going to do it this time. <laughs> but I'm working on the uh, Dress and Crime, Dress and Appearance book that the draft is done, and my agent's uh, getting the proposal out to publishers. And so I'm going to be revising that a bit. But what I really want to get done this summer is the first draft of the 1939 book, where I have uh, African-American sleeping car porter, um, who the porters, I don't know if you know anything about them, but uh, they were in Pullman coaches. And uh, George Pullman went out and hired you know, African-American men to work in the sleeping car. It was like a, a hotel of wheels, uh, and they would you know, be serving in the sleeping car. And people could, you know, as the name implies, you, you would come in, sit in a, a lounge, and you'll know, have dinner in this wonderful you know, restaurant on wheels, and then go to bed in your sleeping car, uh, and then you would arrive wherever you were going. So I have a young man, African-American man, who um, is a sleeping car porter, but wants to become a lawyer. And uh, mm. he realizes that something's going on with one of his passengers, a white passenger from Georgia. 
uh, who's uh, the grandson of a plantation owner who's going back and forth to the New York City World Fair uh, as someone working on an exhibit for Georgia. And the sleeping car porter becomes aware that this man's involved in something. And uh, then he's implicated in the sleeping car porter himself is implicated in something. And an FBI agent is in following both the sleeping car porter and this man. And, <laughs> and so they're going through eight months of 1939 wow. and trying to pull all that together. As I move from Easter Sunday morning at the Lincoln Memorial, with, uh, or Sunday afternoon, I should say, when Marion Anderson performs, to the New York City World Fair, to Cafe Society with Billie Holiday performing, to uh, the four days in real life in Georgia when uh, Gone with the Wind was premiering there. So it's going to take me a lot to work on that. And I'm also working on a, a nonfiction book about gangster movies. A reference book that I was asked to do. Uh, do you and have... I'm going to be teaching a workshop at Yale for six days, a workshop on mystery and crime fiction. Uh, do you have a, a, a favorite fictional detective or a crime show? Uh, well, you know, I love Monk, which is no longer on. <laughs> I don't know if you yes. remember Adrian yep. Monk. Yep. Yeah, I, he just, I, you know, he's such, he has every twitch in the book, but he's so, uh, you know, he's just fascinating to watch. But, you know, I grew up with uh, shows like uh, Law and Order, which I mm-hmm. sometimes, I like that one because it, it it really is torn from the headlines in a sense. You know, they take a real life case and they give it a twist. And so I've used that in my classes, you know, just to talk about you know, the procedure there and then what happens in the courtroom. But there's always this inside joke about Albany, and I live in Albany. So you know, when they're saying, you know, the police officers are saying, you know, we don't want to go to Albany. You know, it's like, okay, you know, coming to Albany, I know you're in New York, but coming to Albany is not that bad. But, but you know, there are recognizable things going on there. And then, you know, I use, most of the old crime shows in my classes, so I do a lot of research with them. Um, but so it's that's kind of interesting. But in terms of books, uh, I like Walter Mosley's uh, Easy Rollins series um, mm-hmm. because he writes historicals, and you know. Um, so, but a lot of the old you know classics like Ag- Agatha Christie's books. I my very first Lizzie Stewart book, uh, Death's Favorite Child, was. Um, sort of a takeoff on an Agatha Christie book. It's set in Cornwall, England, at a private hotel, and uh, housekeepers killed there. And I have Lizzie and a friend staying at the hotel, and she witnesses this woman's death. And so it's the whole question of, you know, an Agatha Christie kind of closed circle of suspects kind of book. So I'm, I lean towards uh, the classics, and I lean towards uh, police procedural. So, so. W- with keeping keeping that in mind, I, I asked this last question of everyone mostly because it's it's fun for me. But um, keeping that last answer in mind, God forbid it should happen, Frankie. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, who would you want? What fictional investigator would you assign the case? Adrian Monk. <laughs> if he could get through the door, he would probably be you're frozen <laughs> outside the door because I have a robin's nest uh, just under my uh, 
you know, Arnie and the door, he would probably stop there and try to rage. But if he eventually made it into my house, you know, I think you know, he would be fascinated that he would go around. I would just like to follow him around and see what interpretation he makes of all the things I have in the house and how he you know, eventually gets to who might have done it. Well, now I'm really interested to come to your house. <laughs> <laughs> my house is, I'm right now, you know, I'm going to have the house painted uh, over the summer or at least in October if it takes me all summer to clean up. But, you know, I've got all the stuff piled up and I'm ready to, so he would try to figure out you know, all these papers, these papers that I got all over, notes to myself about what I was writing. Maybe Adrian Monk and Columbo, that combination would be go. really fascinating. Yeah, and because you wouldn't know who did me in and, and Columbo and Adrian would meet outside the door and have this really fascinating conversation. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time to come on the show today, Frankie. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been real fun talking to you. Now you've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks again to celebrated author, professor, and crime historian Frankie Y. Bailey for joining me today. I'm your host, Thank Gavin you. Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.